0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: Those 12 and up will be able to get the Pfizer vaccine.
2: It's the best way to protect the health of your kids, to get them back into into the activities that they would like to get back into.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Are medical records and procedures compromised after a hack at Scripps? Hospitals
3: have a lot of valuable data. People's personal health records are much more valuable than than credit cards, for example.
1: The U.S. is moving forward with reuniting families separated at the border and a new discovery in outer space. May the 4th be with you. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Children ages 12 to 15 may soon be eligible for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. The FDA is expected to authorize this age group as soon as next week. Here's President Joe Biden a few minutes ago.
2: Today, I want American parents to know that if that announcement comes, we are ready to move immediately, immediately move to make about 20,000 pharmacy sites across the country ready to vaccinate those adolescents as soon as the FDA grants it's okay.
1: Joining me to talk about this development is Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, welcome.
2: Good to be with you.
1: So remind us of the results Pfizer reported after completing its clinical trial of the COVID-19 vaccine in kids aged 12 to 15.
2: Well, the data that's been reported publicly looks very promising. It looks like the vaccines work at least as well in, in adolescents as they do in younger in adults, and the safety profile also looks similar. So I'm quite encouraged by what I've seen so far that we can very soon be immunizing this age group.
1: So what do you say to parents who are hesitant to vaccinate their children?
2: Well, I guess, you know, I I understand the hesitancy around COVID vaccines in general uh, uh, six months ago, but now around the world, we have immunized a billion people with these vaccines, and we're not seeing any concerning side effects uh, except extremely rare things. So we know now with great assurance that these vaccines are safe, Again, the data we've seen so far on 12 to 16-year-olds is that the Pfizer vaccine, it looks like it's going to be very effective, and it's going to allow people to get back to normal, get back to school, get back to sports participation without uh, as many many restrictions.
1: Hmm. And how significant, though, do you think vaccine hesitancy uh, will be among parents in getting their children vaccinated?
2: Well, you know, there's always going to be a subset of the population that's more conservative and wants to wait longer. But I think, uh, again, we've got great experience with these vaccines and and it's the best way to protect the health of your kids, to get them back into into the activities that they would like to get back into. So I think that'll motivate a lot of people to get immunized.
1: And Dr. Sawyer, what's the significance of vaccinating this population of people, the 12 to 15 year olds in terms of reaching herd immunity?
2: Well, I think the first way to think about that is, is just your own family's immunity. The best way to protect your family is to get as many people immunized as possible. From a public health perspective, the bigger question of herd immunity is something that actually just this week we've heard may not be easy to achieve because of the subset of the population who's still not choosing to get immunized. But on a small scale, in a school, in a household, in a community, you can achieve that by getting the most people immunized as possible. It may not be easy for some
1: parents to take their children to get vaccinated. Are you aware of conversations happening here about vaccinating kids at school? I mean, and what logistically would have to happen to make that a reality?
2: I haven't heard of any specific plans yet, but I do know uh, that we've rolled out vaccine clinics quite broadly around the county, and now they're available for walk-in visits as opposed to needing to make an appointment. So I think even if we don't immunize in school, there is going to be a vaccine site near you where you can get vaccinated. And
1: during the first wave of, of COVID-19, it was adults who were most likely to get infected with the virus. But now children represent 22% of new COVID-19 infections. What are the potential consequences of not getting the vaccine and, and then risking getting sick instead?
2: Well, there's certainly the risk of getting sick personally, but there's also the risk of bringing the infection home to, to your family. Uh, even even vaccinated people, you know, rarely still get infected. The vaccine's not 100% effective. And some people have, uh, you know, compromised immune systems, so they don't respond as well. So the best way to protect your family is to get as many people in your family immunized as possible.
1: Some public health experts have said the U.S. should not prioritize vaccinating younger children because they are at relatively low risk for complications from COVID-19, and we should instead continue to prioritize adults or share our doses with countries like India, which are really overwhelmed with cases right now. What are your thoughts? on that?
2: Well, it is true that children are less severely affected uh, from a health perspective, but I want to point out that over 100 children have died in the United States of COVID already. And so that's a level that I think is unacceptable. And I think we, as more vaccine becomes available, we need to make it available to everybody. Uh, You know, the world vaccine supply is a separate question, and it's a very important question. The vaccine companies are ramping up quickly to continue to expand their production, and I think very soon vaccine is going to be generally available worldwide.
1: We are starting to see a slowdown in demand for vaccines across the county. What do you expect to see here when 12 to 15-year-olds become eligible in terms of demand?
2: Well, I think there will be a lot of interest in getting adolescents immunized for the reasons we've already discussed. So I, I think there'll be a surge of interest and in, in, uh, lines probably at some of the clinics to get those vaccines in. But the capacity is now much better than it was four or five months ago when we started immunizing adults. So I think we're going to very quickly be able to meet the demand.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
4: The last update from Scripps Health about the cyber attack that has crippled its access to digital information is that facilities remain open and technical teams are working to resolve the issue. Since Saturday, computer access to patient records, scheduling, and critical electronic systems such as Vital Sign Monitoring have been unavailable. Skirp says it remains in the process of examining the extent of the attack, but law enforcement has been notified. It's suspected that the incident may be a ransomware attack where digital information is held hostage for a substantial payment. Joining me is Mark Heckman, a computer science professor and cybersecurity expert at the University of San Diego. And Mark, welcome. Thank you. How can you tell the difference between a cyber attack and an electronic malfunction of the system?
3: When a system malfunctions, it tends to be a single point of failure. It's rare that every single computer on your network would suddenly have uh, the same kind of problems. Also, there's a certain pattern to the symptoms that you notice. In the case of a, an attack like a, a ransomware attack, you would notice, for example, that suddenly you're unable to get access to all of your files because they've been encrypted. And even more clearly, there'll be a pop-up on your screen that says, you've been hacked. We've encrypted all your files. Send us money or if you want them back. That typically doesn't happen with, with, with uh, random failures.
4: That's a clue. <laughs> so why would Scripps Health System be a target of a ransomware attack?
3: Well, we we don't know for certain that they were a a direct target. It could have been a completely undirected attack. There are people out there trying to uh, get money from whomever they can, and the malware spreads pretty much randomly. It's it's a crime of opportunity. However, that being said, hospitals have a lot of valuable data. People's personal health records are quite valuable, much more valuable than than credit cards, for example. The records could be used for uh, medical fraud. They could also be used for blackmail if people have uh, conditions that they don't want publicly known.
4: Now, Scripps officials aren't saying much about this. Why not? Why aren't they, why aren't they giving out more information, do you think? Well,
3: I can only hypothesize. I, I really don't know anything more than what has been published so far. And you alluded to that in the beginning. They've been very tight-lipped. Uh, but I can hypothesize that. They don't know all the details yet. They don't know exactly what the extent of the damage is. They, for example, don't necessarily know if health information was exfiltrated, was stolen. And if they don't know the extent of that, then they can't really comment and and give you much more information about whether a particular person's records might have been stolen. And also, they don't necessarily know how the attack happened. It it can take days or or weeks sometimes to trace back and try to find the actual original source of a malware infection.
4: Should Scripps patients assume that their information has now been compromised?
3: I I don't think they can make that assumption. It's possible that it was. There's two kinds of ransomware attacks or or two types of of crimes that we call ransomware. In the one case, the information is stolen. And then the, the, call them the bad guys, will say, pay us money or we'll release it. And that's one type of ransomware. The other type of ransomware, the much more common one these days, Is where malware gets on a system and starts encrypting all of the files on that system. And it doesn't steal any data, it just makes that data inaccessible to anyone who legitimately has need of it. And um, I don't know which type of attack happened here.
4: How bad do you think this is potentially for scripts? How long could it take scripts to recover?
3: If this is a type of malware attack where a malicious code gets into a system inside the network and then starts spreading itself to any other system it can reach inside that same network, potentially we're looking at, at, at uh, hundreds or more of workstations and other systems infected inside of Scripps network. And to clean that up requires taking everything off the network. And then one by one, you have to uh, replace all the software on that system with a clean copy of the operating system and, and, and it's essential software so that you can be sure that you've eliminated the, the malicious code. And that is a very time-consuming process. And in fact, if you haven't figured out exactly how it happened in the first place, if you just clean up one system and put it back into service, it could just be reinfected again. So to do this in a way that is most effective, you have to be very careful, and that takes time.
4: What kind of track record does law enforcement have in finding these hackers? Well, we don't
3: hear about it all the time, of course. It's not impossible to hide your tracks on the internet, let's say. However, we have agencies that are quite good at tracking people down. It may take uh, several years uh, sometimes, but in many cases we can identify the culprit, the person behind a particular attack, and if they are someplace reachable, then we can arrest them. But they may be foreign nationals. They may be residing in a country that doesn't have a, an extradition treaty with the United States, in which case we, we can't touch them uh, until they travel someplace that uh, law enforcement can. But we we find that that in many cases, crimes of this type are run by, call it foreign entities, whether they're organized crime or even nation states. And uh, we have limited resources, limited ability to bring the, the culprits to justice.
4: I've been speaking with Mark Heckman, a computer science professor and cybersecurity expert at the University of San Diego. And Mark, thank you very much.
3: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Four families separated at the Mexico border during Donald Trump's presidency will be reunited in the U.S. this week. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas calls this just the beginning of a broader effort, given that there are still hundreds more families to reunite. Joining me is Lee Alert, Deputy Director of ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project. He's been challenging the separation policy in court since two 2000- thousand. 2018. Lee, welcome.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: So four families that were separated at the Mexico border during Trump's presidency will be reunited. What can you tell us about these families?
5: What I can say is that they're all desperate to see their children, as are so many other families who have been separated. You know, these were some of the first families that were separated and have not seen their kids for years. But The joy on their faces when they see their kids—I've been at those reunifications, and I will be at another one this week—is just unimaginable. We are happy; the process is starting, and I think President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas are going to put the full weight of the U.S. government behind this. I am in negotiations now with the Biden administration for a comprehensive settlement. These four families are part of a larger group—fifty-five hundred children were ultimately separated by the Trump administration, a thousand of whom remain separated. And what I want to stress is that reunification is only one piece of this. What we need beyond reunification is permanent legal status for all the families. We need social services to get them back on their feet, including trauma care. We need compensation. So this is going to be a long process and We are in it for the long haul, as we have been since the ACLU filed its lawsuit in 2018.
1: As things stand now, once reunited, will these families who have been separated be able to seek asylum? I mean, what about other families moving forward as well?
5: Yeah, that's a a very good question. They will absolutely be allowed to seek some form of legal permanent status, whether it's through asylum or some other process. That is really the touchstone of this whole thing. The families need to get back to see their children. They're going to have immediate what's called parole so that they're not in danger of being removed. They're going to get social services. But ultimately, the Biden administration will not have succeeded if it doesn't provide a pathway to legal permanent status, whether that's through applying for asylum or some other means. We cannot turn around and kick these families out after what... United States government, the Trump administration deliberately did to these families.
1: You touched on this earlier, but how long have these families been separated and and how long have children been held in detention centers?
5: So some families were separated, including some of these, all the way back to 2017. The children were in facilities sometimes for months, but then they were given to sponsors.
1: What's the biggest challenge right now to bringing these families back together?
5: I think there are two. One is that we still haven't found the parents of 455 children. We need to find those families as soon as possible. The other, I think, is relocating some of the families we had found years ago, but may have gone off the map. And then finally, there's just, you know, beyond that, there's just gonna be the sheer logistics. The government is gonna want biometrics from some family members. There's getting families from remote villages in Guatemala or other places to the airport, to the embassies. There's just a lot of logistics around it.
6: What do you
1: think the Trump administration's motive was in uh, enforcing this immigration policy?
5: I think we now know pretty clearly that the Trump administration believed, well, if we just do something so evil, if we take children away, even babies, they took even babies six months old away, these parents will give up their asylum claims and other parents will not come and seek asylum. You know, and it's the worst thing I have ever seen in my 30 years doing this work. You know, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics was right to just call it straight out child abuse.
1: Why do you think the Trump administration was so adamant about deterring immigration from south of the border?
5: I think the Trump administration viewed it as a political win. I think many of the policies, maybe almost all of them, That the trump administration enacted in the immigration area were racist i don't think we would have ever thought about taking children away if these were white european families coming i think the trump administration ultimately miscalculated and thought well they had dehumanized the central american population to such an extent that the american people would not revolt against this policy and if there's any silver lining in this whole saga it's that not just Democrats and liberals, but Republicans, conservatives, everyone was repulsed by what the Trump administration did, taking children away. And there was such a backlash. I I think we need to all remember that when we see something like this so evil, we have to speak out and push back. We need to document it and get to the bottom of every last thing that happened so we have an historical record so it never happens again.
1: You know, there are children who were forced to live without their parents during their most formative years. The separation policy impacted a generation of kids. What do you think the consequence of that policy will be for years to come?
5: I I am very worried about that. I hope that with enough treatment, the children can lead healthy, productive lives. But I am told by medical professionals that many of the children may ultimately suffer irreparable damage and lasting trauma. Um, We may have created a whole generation uh, of children who are just not going to be able to lead healthy, productive lives. When I went to a family's house, one of the first families we got reunified, the mother told us, the four-year-old boy just keeps asking, are they going to come and take me away again in the middle of the night? You know That kind of feeling of vulnerability that the world is never going to be safe again May last forever with these children. And so, you know, right now, we can't even calculate how much damage we've done. We just need to move forward and try and get as, the families as much help as possible to minimize as much as possible what's been, what's been done to them.
1: I've been speaking with Lee Galernt, Deputy Director of ACLU's Immigration Rights Project. Lee, thank you very much for joining
4: us.
5: Thank you for having me.
4: The Pentagon is trying to make some of the nation's most crucial military bases less vulnerable to the effects of climate change. The effort comes more than two years after a pair of hurricanes caused billions of dollars in damage to bases in the southeast. From Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, Jay Price reports for the American Homefront Project.
7: In front of a single-story brick regimental headquarters that will be torn down and replaced, four dignitaries in hard hats raised shovels of soil. If we do this right, all dirt will be synchronized. Are we ready?
0: Lift, three,
7: two, one. Then they dumped the dirt. It's a set piece of civic life, a groundbreaking ceremony to mark the start of a construction project. But in this case, it also marks a big moment for national security, the start of construction on dozens of buildings that have to be replaced here because of damage from Hurricane Florence in 2018. The reconstruction effort is so large and important that the Navy set up an entire new facilities command to run it under a senior officer, Captain Jim Brown. He's the MC for the groundbreaking.
0: This is ceremony, but it is a huge deal. We will restore this base. We will get it back and we'll make it better than it was before.
7: Navy and Marine officers say Congress pushed through funding quickly, planning was accelerated, and construction is starting twice as soon as typical military projects. But it will still take at least another five years to complete the work. Miguel Dieguez, also a Navy captain, is Camp Lejeune's facilities director. He spoke to a group of dignitaries before the ceremony.
5: Hurricane Florence, uh, I like to say exposed a soft underbelly. Of our infrastructure here across the three Marine Corps installations
7: in North Carolina. The hurricane was unusual in that it not only was powerful, but it moved slowly and carried an extraordinary amount of water. Its high winds damaged the roofs of hundreds of buildings at Camp Lejeune and the New River and Cherry Point Marine Corps air stations. Then the storm sat over them for three days, dumping an all time record of three feet of rainfall. It poured into ceilings and inside walls and flooded interiors. Again, Captain Dieguez, The oldest and kind of most vulnerable part of our infrastructure uh, that dates back to the 40s and 50s was really susceptible to the winds and the rain that happened. The startling amount of damage here and billions of dollars more from another hurricane the same year at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida led the Pentagon to retool its construction standards to better take into account the increasing risks from climate change. Dieguez said the new structures will be built to better withstand storms.
5: Getting the ability to rebuild the infrastructure so that going forward when a storm like this happens again and it's only a matter of time that the base is better postured and more resilient.
7: And the main Marine headquarters for East Coast Infantry Units, which is on the waterfront, will be relocated to one of the highest points on the base.
4: Uh, We can't really wall off water, Um, so it is uh, refreshing to hear that Camp Lejeune is looking at Moving uh, some structures inland?
7: That's Shana Yadvardi of the Union of Concerned Scientists. She was co-author of a report in 2016 underlining the threats climate change poses to several bases, including Lejeune. Yadvardi said it was heartening when Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin called climate change an existential threat to U.S. national security, signaling a new level of seriousness in the Pentagon about climate issues. Experts have long warned that many Many coastal military bases are vulnerable to the sea level rise and increasingly numerous and more powerful storms triggered by climate change. A Center for Climate and Security report issued just months before the storm hit Lejeune had highlighted risks there. Among other things, it recommended significant upgrades to the base's utilities to make them less vulnerable to storms and flooding. Dieguez said those are among the improvements now planned. At Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I'm Jay Price.
4: This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. People who were evacuated are back in their homes and firefighters continue to make good progress in handling the Southern fire in Anza Borrego Desert State Park. But when the fire started on Saturday, it took off with frightening speed, doubling in size overnight. The Southern Fire consumed 5,200 acres and destroyed three homes and two outbuildings. 500 residents near Shelter Valley were evacuated. While this blaze is being controlled, fire officials are concerned that it may be a sign of things to come as most of California heads into fire season in the midst of another drought. Joining me is Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in San Diego. Alex, welcome back. Hi thanks for having me on again. What were the weather conditions like over the weekend that made the southern fire grow so quickly?
8: Yeah that was a frightening fire especially since we're talking about it's only early May and we're talking about full large fires uh, and even evacuations that resulted. The weather conditions were windy as you might suspect though they were not Santa Ana winds uh, we saw gusty westerly winds so coming in off the ocean but the problem, was on Thursday and Friday and even Saturday, it was downright hot out in that area. So the combination of the heat, the gusty west winds, and then you had a fire start and it was a bad ingredient.
4: We have a, a quote here from Cal Fire San Diego Captain Frank Lacoco talking about what he feels is the fortunate direction of the wind.
5: This fire, we actually had the benefit of the winds coming out of the west which pushed, it, uh, pushed the fire obviously east and towards mostly unpopulated areas, with the exception of uh, the Butterfield Ranch campground and a few surrounding
4: houses. Now, we all know that San Diego hasn't had much rainfall this year. Alex, how below average are we? Yeah, that's the bigger
8: problem, and that's really what set up the potential for this fire to burn as well as it did or to be so aggressive and fast-moving rate of spread. This has been a dry winter, especially in our desert areas where they've received only 20 to 30 percent or maybe a quarter of what they should see annually. So, we're talking about deficits of several inches. So, that's uh, several storms basically that are missing. And this is unfortunately everywhere in San Diego County, uh, including downtown San Diego, including our, our mountains and our valleys where we live and along the coast where most places have only seen 50% or half of their annual precipitation. And here we are in May. uh, We typically don't see a lot of precipitation after May to make up for it.
4: Does that mean we're officially in a drought?
8: Okay, so for California, drought is officially declared by the governor's office. And at the moment, no, Southern California has not been declared a drought. They've been piecemealing it and identifying worse off areas in California where drought has been identified. Now, that said, we are abnormally dry and conditions just to our north in LA basin are even worse. So drought is starting to spread and creep. It just hasn't been officially announced here in Southern California as drought, but it looks inevitable because conditions with warmer temperatures, the dry winter, we're seeing the expansion of drought-like conditions even here in Southern California. Water supply is a big factor in all of this.
4: Now, last year was a record-breaking fire season in the state. How does this year compare to last year?
8: Yeah, last year was uh, record-breaking. Over 4 million acres burned across all of California. Even here, we had the Valley Fire that erupted in September in San Diego County during record hot temperatures. I think based on the fuel moisture, so the measure of moisture or the lack of moisture in our fuel in San Diego County, it's at record levels right now already. And we don't wanna say that because it's only May. This is supposed to be our green time where the grass is growing and things are blooming and coming to life, but it's gonna be a short window, it looks like this year. And we're gonna be talking about extreme conditions uh, as soon as late spring, if not already developing right now. So depending on how many fire starts we have, that's the key. Uh, we'll determine if this becomes a busy or just average year. But we're looking at, unfortunately, above average, we think, for fire potentials, as we go into the summer.
4: Now, you know, we're seeing May gray on and off with the marine layer, and it got downright chilly last week. Is there any chance of rain in the forecast at all? Other than just some drizzle and, and light rain like we
8: saw if you are out and about on Sunday Other than something like that, this is the time of the year on the coast where we typically see a lot of clouds, hence the May gray, June gloom terminology. Um, Our ocean temperatures are behaving themselves this year, so they're staying average. Uh, So that's good for the coast, but that's probably not going to help much for our backcountry. So our backcountry is unfortunately going to have to deal with, you know, the heat waves, the warmer temperatures, and, of course, the elevated to sometimes critical fire conditions like we've already seen. For our coastal areas, it'll buy us some time. The marine and low clouds, they look like they'll be returning on a regular cycle as we go through May and June, but keyword key word is buy us some time. Uh, when we get deeper into the summer, uh, I think we're all going to be in this high fire danger.
4: I've been speaking with Alex Tardy. He's Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in San Diego. And Alex, thank you very much.
8: Uh, thank you very much, on.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. They are known as cosmic monsters and are some of the most extreme objects known in the universe. They are stars on the verge of collapsing into a black hole, a celestial event so extreme the conditions defy physics and can't even be recreated here on Earth. Scientists call them neutron stars, and they have gotten their first glimpse at one through the NASA telescope. Joining me now is Cole Miller, a NICER team member and professor of astronomy at the University of Maryland. Cole,
6: welcome. Thank you very much, Jade. Thank you for having me. So can you explain what a neutron star is? You think about a really big star, a lot bigger than the sun, and it lives a fast life. And then when it dies, it dies spectacularly. It collapses. But if it becomes a neutron star, it stops collapsing when it's about the size of a city. So it has a surface and it's hot and nasty. And luckily, we're far enough away from these that we can study them from a safe distance.
1: Wow. And, you know, it's said a neutron star is a black
6: hole's smaller cousin. Why is that? It's because if you think about even bigger stars, which collapse, they collapse all the way. They don't stop at the size of a city. They go all the way down to a point, making a black hole. And instead of surfaces, black holes have a distance from that central point, such that if you get inside of it, you're not coming back out ever. And black holes are heavier than neutron stars, which I suppose makes them the larger cousins of those neutron stars.
1: Wow. So what relationship do neutron stars have with space and time? Well, neutron stars, because
6: they pack such a huge amount of matter into such a small volume, warp space and time in a way that was originally envisioned by Albert Einstein. This means, for example, that if light goes by them, it it bends a lot, a lot of other very strange things. But this is precisely the kind of science that we are testing with NASA's NICER mission.
1: Hmm. What's your role uh, on the NICER telescope team?
6: I am the leader of one of two teams which have analyzed the NICER X-ray data, which have been taken on a select number of neutron stars, where we're trying to use this information to figure out the sizes of neutron stars. And the reason we do that is that it gives us a hint about the state of the matter in the insides of these stars, which is a state we cannot probe in laboratories on Earth.
1: So why do scientists want to find out uh, what the core of a neutron star is made of? What can it
6: really tell us? It can tell us about a state of matter that we don't really understand. Not only can we not experiment on it in laboratories on Earth, but various theories diverge wildly about it. Indeed, I would say quite generally, because neutron stars represent extremes in matter, energy, and gravity, any study of them leads to the possibility of truly fundamental improvements in our understanding. Mm. I mean, when we've tried to recreate those conditions here on Earth, what I guess I'm wondering, like, what happened when we got close? We have Gotten close only in a couple of ways. One is that if you think about ordinary atoms, and you may remember that these have nuclei of neutrons and protons in them, that's a state of matter, but it's not as dense as you get into a neutron star. You can also slam nuclei together at very high speeds, but that's much hotter than a neutron star. So this is really off limits. The only way we could manage this on Earth is if we had some supernatural giant who was able to crush things to an extraordinarily high density. And so far, we haven't had any such giants volunteer.
1: (laughs) So the Large Hadron Collider just didn't even get us close.
6: No. And that's because you end up with matter that's very hot as well as being very dense. For the neutron star, it's very dense, but actually, by the standards of these things, relatively cold. The temperature doesn't play much of a role. Interesting. So I
1: mean so when when these stars collapse what do you th- what type of matter do you think they turn to? Do you think they turn to plasma?
6: There is a very good idea that in some case they are considered to be not just a plasma but one that is made up of the components of neutrons and protons. So this is quarks and gluons in plasma. But what we know for sure is that this satisfies the conditions of a plasma. It's fully ionized. The electrons are just moving kind of randomly without being attached to individual nuclei. But like I say, it is so puzzling about what's going on that we need these observational hints like with NICER. And can you go more into what the telescope allows uh, to be seen? Yeah. Uh, NICER is an X-ray telescope. And because, very fortunately for humanity, x-rays do not get through the atmosphere, it means you must have x-ray telescopes above the atmosphere. NICER is one of those. It's mounted on the International Space Station, which has a lot of advantages. The the infrastructure for power, for data relay down to Earth, and so on, is all very positive. And so what NICER is doing is it's specializing. It's looking at a select number of targets and staring at them a lot. So for this one, it's about 1.6 million seconds of total exposure over two years. And this type of staring at the sources is essential to get the data of the quality we need. And that gives us an
1: idea of what that core is made of?
6: It does, although somewhat indirectly. The key is that by these x-ray measurements, and then our own work on inferring what it means, we're able to get a good estimate of the size of neutron stars. People have tried before, but these have often been methods that have been subject to possibly very significant bias. For various reasons, we think that is not true for these measurements. Knowing the size then gives you hints where we can go to physicists and say, what does this imply? So it allows us to tell things about the nature of the matter, how squeezable it is, for example. But there's still some mysteries that await further data. And what else can be learned from being able to see neutron stars? Neutron stars, in general, are objects that have many extremes. They have the strongest magnetic fields in the universe. They're the best natural clocks in the universe and so on. Just as an example of one of the remarkable things that people are working on, you know that gravitational waves, ripples in space-time, have been seen by instruments such as LIGO. But what's not been as publicized is that people are using arrays of neutron stars to use them as these outstanding natural clocks. And they're maybe getting the first hints and expect to see them within five or so years that we have ripples going on with much longer periods. So actually seeing the symphony of the universe using pulsars as natural detectors.
1: Interesting. What exactly is a ripple in space-time?
6: One of the things that comes out of Einstein's theory of gravity, which is general relativity, is that If you have things that are moving, then the normal warp of space-time, think about a bowling ball on top of a rubber sheet. If you move two bowling balls around, there will be ripples in that rubber sheet. And in space and time, these ripples are called gravitational waves. If they were to go past you, they would stretch and shrink you, but by minute amounts. So we need extremely sensitive instruments. So why does this matter? I think that There are various reasons why this matters. I'll give you sort of the the high-minded one and then also a practical one. For the high-minded one, we want to be able to learn more about matter and energy and gravity. And this is a case where we can't do the studies on Earth. And so this is the only way we get that info. In terms of practical import, something a lot of people don't recognize is that the scientific motivation for a particular project, such as this one, often requires the development of technology, which is useful in other ways nicer, for example, is not just being used to study neutron stars. It's used also as a pilot study for using the extremely well-timed pulsars that I mentioned, the the neutron stars that are great clocks, to potentially in the future navigate around the solar system, kind of using those neutron stars as natural GPS. And it's because of the drive toward being really able to time extremely well when individual x-rays arrive to us, that this has become possible.
1: Very interesting. I've been speaking with Cole Miller, a NICER team member and professor of astronomy at the University of Maryland. Cole, thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thank you very much, Jake. Pleasure talking with you.
4: California's underwater kelp forests are in trouble. A combination of climate change and hungry purple sea urchins have decimated these vital forests. But the Monterey Peninsula has a kelp forest guardian, sea otters. As KAZU's Erica Mahoney reports, new research out of the University of California Santa Cruz is highlighting their role.
9: Sea otters are adorable. They have big eyes, wispy whiskers, and dense fur coats. Even their sounds are cute, as captured by the Monterey Bay Aquarium. But beyond all that cuteness, sea otters are important to the Monterey Bay's ecosystem. Notably, defending kelp forests, which are home to over 800 different animal species. Forests that are already in bad shape. Standing near a beach on Cannery Row in Monterey, Josh Smith, a Ph.D. candidate at UC Santa Cruz, describes what the kelp forest here looked like just a decade ago.
10: The canopy would have spread out across this entire little bay right here that we're in. And so right now what we're seeing is a very patchy kelp forest.
9: That motivated him to research the role sea otters play in the complex story of disappearing kelp. The story begins around 2013. That's when the number of purple sea urchins skyrocketed after a disease wiped out one of their main predators. Urchins devour kelp. The declining forest was further weakened by warming waters, a symptom of climate change. Kelp needs cold water to survive. The result? Northern California lost 95% of its kelp forest in under a decade. The Monterey Bay area fared better, only losing around 60 percent.
10: One thing that our study has shown is that having predators like the sea otter are really important in helping to buffer this ecosystem from change.
9: The Ph.D. candidate says sea otters are slowing the decline of the local kelp forest by eating up urchins. In fact, three times as many as they used to. To collect data, Smith spent about 300 hours underwater along the Monterey Peninsula. He also worked with scientists from the Monterey Bay Aquarium and the U.S. Geological Survey who used telescopes and rangefinders to record what sea otters were eating and where.
10: One thing that's great about studying sea otters is they consume their prey at the surface. So we can watch an otter dive down and we can record where it came up and what it came up with.
9: The team's findings were recently published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. They found that otters ignore urchin barrens, areas where urchins have overgrazed kelp to the bare seafloor. The purple creatures there are starving, often called zombie urchins. Instead, the otters focus on foraging the healthy ones in the remaining patches of kelp.
10: Because sea otters are targeting urchins in these forests, They're helping to maintain the remnant patches of kelp forest that we actually have from overgrazing by sea urchins.
9: Otters live between Santa Barbara and just north of Santa Cruz. Further north from otter territory, urchins have no predators. And that's possibly why the kelp forest decline is more severe in northern California. Tristan McHugh, who works for the Nature Conservancy, is trying to find solutions. In Northern California, we don't have otters, we don't have lobsters, we don't have sheephead, we don't have sunflower stars. That really puts the pressure currently on humans to fill the role of that top predator. The Nature Conservancy is exploring several innovative ideas, including urchin trapping, to pull the spiny creatures out of the water. It's also launching an experimental kelp farm. The pilot project is scheduled to begin this spring in Humboldt Bay. As for the Monterey Bay, sea otters keep urchins with an insatiable taste for kelp in check, something Dane Durand, who manages the Aquarius dive shop in Monterey, definitely appreciates. As he fills up scuba tanks, he says the kelp forest draws people from all over the world.
10: So we get people from England and all over Europe. I just had somebody from Iceland last week. The kelp forest is something extremely special here.
9: From supporting the local economy to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Luckily, the local kelp forest has guardians. Guardians that play a larger role than just looking and sounding cute. That was KAZU's Erica
4: Mahoney reporting.